June of 2015. Uh, I got a grant through UAA to go camp for a week at a walrus sanctuary, which was like on a little island called Round Island off the coast of Togiak, kind of like south and west Alaska. I think that was the most incredible adventure I have ever been on. Um, one, because it just had all these like really funny intricacies of just total Alaska stuff. But then also, you know, I was on an island with only two of my students came with, and then there were two biologists on the island, and we were the only ones there. And so we literally woke up in the morning, puffins flying over our tent. We'd make breakfast, then we'd go walk around the island and watch walruses burp and fart and scratch themselves. And I'd just sit there and lean over this cliff really quietly, sketching walrus, taking pictures. We'd get up, we'd hike over to another part of the island and watch thousands of birds laying eggs and flying around and come back, we'd eat lunch, we'd like chit-chat with the biologists, and then we'd walk to the other end of the island and watch sea lions fight with each other, and it was incredible. <laughs> Welcome to Hello Atelier. I'm your host, Betsy Blodgett, and with me is producer Jonathan Getz. Hello! For this week's episode, Jonathan and I made the long journey north to Alaska to visit with ceramic sculpture artist Alana Duraki who we also happen to grow up with in the small town of Petersburg, Illinois. So Alana makes sculptural installations, many of which are obscure or unusual animals. Through her sculpture, she creates a unique connection to these beings and objects frozen in time. Whether it's a hippo staring vacantly into space, or a row of giant dinosaur vertebrae simply dominating a room. I feel like we should take a moment and note the life-size scale of Alana's work. It wasn't until she asked me to help unload some of her work into a storage facility back in the day that I truly appreciated the magnitude of her sculptures. Ceramic living rooms and wildebeests and hippos, oh my. We met Alana in her studio at the University of Alaska in Anchorage, where she is a teacher. The small space is dominated by her work. One half of a walrus lounges on one table, while another walrus head peers at us from a corner all under the stern gaze of a bust of Abraham Lincoln who rests on a shelf. And looming in the middle of the room, there's a work in progress inspired by Peruvian pottery. Ah, oh, that's a good place to start. Alana talking about this new direction of hers. Let's roll tape. This piece that I'm working on right now is kind of like this recreation of an old moche ceramics pot. I made actually the same sculpture last year, and it took me three months because of just my schedule with school. And then I fired it, it like was a disaster. I smashed it and threw it away. And so this is like my second time trying to build this piece and it's going much faster. And I think it's because I kind of have the memory of how I did it before. When I was an undergrad, I worked for my old sculpture professor. He taught in the sculpture program and his girlfriend at the time um, was an older woman who they had like a, a studio together and then they also collected a bunch of pots old Mimbris pots, Moche pots. They had a pretty incredible collection. And I used to work for them, like cleaning her house. And so part of my job was vacuuming in the room, like around the collection or like dusting some of the shelves and just kind of being in awe that they had all these beautiful pots. And um, I've always been interested in, you know, the Moche pots. Um, and so I've visited Peru a couple times and gone to the Museo Larco in Lima, where they have an entire wing of the museum is just floor to ceiling, shelf after shelf, row after row of these pots. Mm -hmm. And the pots kind of exhibit every aspect of their life 
if you go through and look at all the books, there's like pots of like warriors, there's pots for agriculture, um, livestock. They have this whole wing in the museum of erotic pots, which obviously are my favorite. And so I've kind of just been like looking at the pictures I took in that museum and thinking about specific pots and how I can attribute some characteristics of those pots to personal stories in my own life. Even things that like nobody would really know about or, but you know, like this pot definitely tells a story of something in my own life. (laughs) Um, And I feel like for me to kind of make it on a bigger scale allows me to have this kind of like a bigger confrontation with it in a way. I have like a sketchbook of all these ideas. And lately I've been like taking ideas from like things I see in books or old paintings and um, like old ceramic pots and trying to like move away from the animals I've been making and using these animals as these subjects and kind of combining them more with objects, which is a little something that I did, you know, when I was first starting to kind of make sculpture was putting these like animal subjects in these scenarios with more like domestic things like chairs and furniture, like I'd build out of clay and I find myself like kind of wanting to get back to that because of the almost like the anonymity of those objects, um, which is why I kind of had moved away from making figurative work, you know, making people out of clay um, and moved on to animals because I felt like there was less of a notable identity, you know, with making these animals. They seemed a little bit more ambiguous. And, you know, when I first started really making sculpture, I was making figures and I always felt kind of this weird pressure on myself like okay well who is this figure am I just going to make some arbitrary person that I don't know or is it going to be like my friend or you know are you going to recognize this person um, by their facial features and I think I just got so overwhelmed with that aspect that I just kind of one day was like I'm going to make an animal you know and I I think the first animal I ever made was like a porcupine (laughs) and I remembered making it in like two days and it was kind of like a medium-sized piece it wasn't like huge or anything but I felt so excited about that because it didn't, it has a face, but it's not, you know, something that you instantly recognize as that's my friend or that's whoever, um, who is this person? And I think that, like I was saying, that ambiguity really excited me. And so I became really invested in (laughs) these like animals that I had never even heard of, like a tapir or a capybara. Like I started finding all these images of animals I'd never heard of. I had no idea of the world's largest rodent. And so when I was in Cal State Long Beach, I was so lucky because I got, um, they have this great travel program there uh, that they like encourage students to apply for this grant where you can travel anywhere you want, like in the whole world. Um, You just write a proposal and tell them why and And so I ended up getting to go to Peru to go watch tapers eat clay in the jungle. They had become one of my favorite animals because they're so strange. And I had never imagined that I would ever get to see this thing that to me in a picture just seems almost imaginary. So I think that's initially where I was kind of pulling this idea from these animals from and feeling really excited because, you know, I envision I'm never going to have contact with that thing, but I can build it in my space. And in that way, it becomes kind of part of my own history in a way. I one time did make a full-size naked Abraham Lincoln, which at the time seemed like an amazing idea, but in hindsight, maybe not so much. (laughs) I feel like Abe Lincoln for me just represents home. You know, in Petersburg, Illinois, his head is on everything. And so, yeah, I've got little Abe things. People give me Abe stuff all the time. Uh, My student, Chelsea, just gave me that little Abraham Lincoln ornament over there hanging on my (laughs) Orton cone chart. (laughs) 
Although Alana had already started exploring the world of animals, her thesis show marked a milestone in her artistic style. The Stark Gallery was filled with creatures. In one corner, a platform held the backside of a hippopotamus, his front half having disappeared into the wall. Meanwhile, a tapir waited in standing water, his back to a room full of wildebeests, rabbits, and cactus. In another corner, a full-sized ceramic overstuffed chair offered a vantage point for the menagerie spilling about the room. Uh, my thesis work was a show that I called Unnatural History, and it was all based on my first trip to New York City. And I went to the new, uh, the what is it, the AMNH, American Museum of Natural History. <laughs> And I had never been there before, and I was so blown away because I felt like the work that I was making when I got into graduate school, I was, like, really interested in seeing, like, dioramas and these, like, almost like a two-dimensional look to the three-dimensional work that I was making. And so when I went to the Natural History Museum, I walked through their hall of dioramas and was totally just floored. Um, and I bought like the book that they had that this guy wrote um, that kind of like documented the making and creation of, you know, those dioramas and like the history behind all the taxidermy and just to see all these images of behind the scenes of how they made all that stuff, you know, in the in the dioramas just was like magic to me. And I just took those pictures that I found in the book and I was like, this is what I want to make. I want to be these people in the museum, like wearing suits and little bow ties and like Tyvek suits or whatever, dusting rhinoceroses' noses and, you know, shaving down these um, prehistoric mammal snouts and stuff. I just saw some kind of magic in that. And so I got back from that trip and just immediately started recreating those images that I saw, like, in my studio. Deconstruction is inevitable in Alana's process. During creation, she must find a way to fire these large pieces within not-as-large kilns. Then, the cumbersome scale of much of Alana's finished work often results in pieces that are destined for an untimely demise. Due to storage constraints or shipping expenses, many of her pieces end up destroyed upon the closing of an exhibition. I asked Alana if she is ever deterred by the enormity of her vision. I mean, the cool thing about that is that it just makes it more challenging for me. Trying not to think, like, if I have an idea for a piece I want to make, and I'm like, ugh, that'll never fit in the kiln, I just, I don't care anymore. I just figure out a way to, like, cut it differently or maybe build it a little bit differently so it'll be easier for me to cut apart and put it back together later. <laughs> even with those kind of constraints, I still am really stubborn, and I don't even, like, measure stuff really before I start building it, like the piece I have right here. I didn't measure it. I was like asked a student the other day, do you remember how big that kiln is like in the other building? And, you know, he gave me like a ballpark figure and I was like, eh, it might fit in there, but it's not looking so promising. So I've gotten really lucky, but I find, I guess I like the challenge of, you know, figuring that out too. But I also, at the same time, sometimes will look at a piece and think, I really don't want to cut this piece apart. <laughs> is there any way I can like hold on to it without firing it? No. <laughs> Cut it apart. You know, there's only so much money that you have to spend on storage units to keep work around. And actually, my first kind of experience with having to sort of get rid of an entire herd of work, like a whole body of work, was when I was at Cal State Long Beach and I was just like making, 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 making. And eventually around the studio, like around the school, there was just sculptures kind of hanging out in all these random corners and 
And Tony Marsh, who was teaching there, was like, you know, these can't stick around. <laughs> and I thought, okay, well, I guess I'll just get rid of them. And I think I took a couple days and put them all in our ceramic dumpster and took a sledgehammer to them. And it was sort of this <laughs> kind of like a rite of passage. You know, it's like, fine, I had some time with those pieces. I made them. I got to see them. I photographed them. I got to exhibit them. On to the next. And so I still kind of try to keep that <laughs> mentality a little bit, but it kind of still, it does still hurt. There is a storage unit like out in a cornfield, like outside of Petersburg, that's got an African water buffalo, maybe a hippo, <laughs> some other weird animals shoved in it that need a good home if anyone's interested. Something like that my professor Sungu would say to me in undergrad all the time, like, you know, you, you have to find your voice. And I was like, what do you mean? Like, I'm making all this stuff. And I guess in a way, like I said, like with making pottery, like I just didn't feel like I was saying anything with it. There was like a big story in me that I want to tell and it just doesn't come out with that. When I was at Cal State Long Beach, I started to really feel... I don't know, maybe just like feel a little bit more open to making whatever, not being embarrassed about what I was making and just trying to have the courage to make whatever I wanted to. And I think once I kind of started to do that, then little bits of that voice maybe start to come out. And and then I felt like with all the time I had in graduate school, the two years of just super focused work, it was like something really clicked that second year of grad school when I went to that natural history museum and kind of just started seeing things a little bit differently or more intently. And after graduate school, I felt like I was still trying to pursue those, that kind of subject matter. And I would, it would kind of wane, like I'd get a little lost for a while and then I'd find something that I click on again. And um, so now here, I feel like I'm kind of starting to, when I first got here, I felt a little lost again. And so now I've been here for like three years and I feel like something this past year kind of clicked again and I'm trying not to let that go. <laughs> so I've really been kind of like pushing towards making some different kind of work than what I was used to before. And I had some people say like, you know, yeah, we, well, yeah, that stuff's okay. Like that newer stuff's okay. But, but you make those animals, you know, but I don't want to just be the person that makes those animals. That's not everything to me. So ultimately I want to be an artist. That's my number one main goal and I think I'm really stubborn and the type of work that I make isn't quite conducive to me selling a lot of it and making money off of it that way. And I feel a lot of pressure to kind of change the way that I work. You know, like, Alana, why don't you make smaller pieces or make things that people want to buy that'll fit in their homes? And I just, I can't bring myself to do it. An upcoming show at the Anchorage Museum has Alana focused on a new body of work, one that will illustrate her artistic evolution. For the exhibition I'm going to have at the Anchorage Museum next year, I had this idea. Actually, a student gave me this book. It's like of paintings by Jean-Baptiste. And I just opened the book up to this page and there was his painting called The Dead Wolf. And I just like found myself staring at that painting over and over again and thinking like, there's something in this that I really am kind of drawn to. And so I just have this idea to kind of maybe venture a little bit more outside of like the animal pieces that I've been making. I feel like a lot of the animal pieces I've been making lately have been, I'm kind of trying to turn these like sculptures that look like in some ways like these living beings, but turning them more into objects. I think um, with the animals for me, it's not about kind of making them seem like these 
emotional or sentient beings. Um, I kind of like this idea of turning them into these objects. I mean, I'm building these like weird hollow forms, you know, they're like this hollow shell that has the appearance of an animal. I think of them a lot like, you know, when you look at taxidermy and you can kind of wonder about the story behind like what that animal's life was like, but no one's ever really going to know. They're just like these weird objects that sort of represent something that had a life at one time that none of us ever will know like the story behind that, that kind of animal's life. So I feel like I kind of want to incorporate that idea in with some of these objects, like this Peruvian pot that I'm making and kind of attach my own personal sentiment to these things, but kind of arrange them in a grouping that I can give it my own kind of context. And so I'm taking kind of the idea of that Baptiste painting with the dead wolf and kind of pulling from my own life kind of the meaning behind some of the objects that I'm going to compose on this kind of larger table. Um, So I have this idea that's, you know, maybe it'll be one of the bigger pieces in my exhibition, but a lot of it'll have to do with like a friend I had who passed away um, last year. And just thinking about, you know, seeing that dead wolf kind of underneath this table in the painting reminds me of him and seeing this, um, we had gone to like Yellowstone together when I lived in Montana. And it was the first time I ever saw wolves in the wild. He had helped me buy like a spotting scope. And so we took my spotting scope out there and we're watching these wolves. And he was kind of like one of the Montana guys who didn't like wolves. There's kind of a lot of people there who, you know, like ranchers and stuff who are obviously like kind of anti-wolf because they're killing their livestock and But for me, there was a magic in seeing this elusive animal that not a lot of people are fortunate enough to see. And the way that I saw the wolves through my spotting scope was like, they were like these dogs playing. They were licking each other and like taking a nap in the sun. And it was this really peaceful moment um, away from, you know, the stories that I had kind of like heard from local people or whatever who were also out there watching the wolves. And so I guess I kind of have, that's like one small sort of attachment I found in just looking at that painting. And so some of the other things that are in the painting, a couple hunting dogs in the foreground, you know, and when I was a kid, I had a beagle dog. And so I feel like I want to sort of maybe make a couple beagle dogs there in the foreground of this table. And um, the table also has a cantaloupe that's spilling its seeds open. And so I can see some kind of like, almost like sexual references in that. And so um, I want to put that stuff in there. Like the proposal that I wrote for the exhibition I wanted to title the show, like, Sex, Death, and Expectations. And a lot of it has to do with just my life since I've lived in Alaska. And a lot of it is filled with loss and death and just (laughs) some unsavory experiences with people. And despite how, like, good my life is here. um, And I really just kind of wanted to put a lot of those things into these objects that I'm going to make. So so I'm envisioning like in the show, there's going to be things like plants. You know, I used to make a lot of like potted plants and cactuses, and I'd like to kind of make a few more things like that, but, you know, have them sort of be like maybe some really limp, flaccid cactuses or maybe a few more animal pieces with a couple like walruses laying out with, you know, totally exposing themselves. And, and a lot of it, I literally am drawing direct references to my own personal experiences, but kind of using these objects and animals as kind of objects to tell those stories. Thanks for listening to Hello Atelier, a production of the Phonicalia Media Network. To see images of Alana's work and studio, visit us at helloatelier.org. An easy way to help support this program is to subscribe for free on iTunes or Google Play. 
You can also follow us on Facebook and Instagram to see extras from the podcast and to live a little Hello Atelier every day.